Today, I have David Demesquita on the podcast, and we're going to be learning about him and his background, talking about all things you know, men's health, women's health, and hormones, super popular and controversial subjects. So David, really excited to sit down and talk with you. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, I think we're going to be doing an introduction of you too on this podcast too. So we're going to get to know each other a little bit and then jump into women's health. So I'm really excited about it. Women's health is actually what got me back into even coaching. I was actually had a background in IT. So it was data analysis. And there were a lot of really sick women around me from coaching and infertility issues. So that was actually my culprit to getting back into the space of even coaching people. So I do a lot of medical functional as well as the just bodybuilding aspect of coaching now. And I bodybuilding was my, not my scapegoat, but it was definitely my foot in the door to fitness. I was a soccer player, had a scholarship to go to D1 school, got severely injured and ended up falling into bodybuilding because I needed an outlet. I was an adrenaline junkie. I had a sports car. I, so it was one of those things where I, I needed an outlet to take everything out. And that was bodybuilding for me. I went to the gym and just crushed it and ate as much food as I could. I went from 135 pounds, like 217 pounds in three years. I always thought I was going to be a small guy for the rest of my life. Turned out that was not the case, but that was my sanctuary. So, and then back then there weren't a lot of good outlets for knowledge on the internet. YouTube was not what it is today. Bodybuilding.com was mediocre every once in a while you could see like jay cutler posting his jay cutler workout up there and you run it for a little while i remember that when creatine came out and hmb came out that was like the big hot topic and you would take it and you'd get huge so all you knew is that creatine stored water so i was using bro science let's just eat a bunch of sodium because i didn't have money for creatine back then have sodium load before a heavy leg day and go to the gym so during this time period, however, I unfortunately experienced gut dysbiosis. I had a intestinal infection at the age of 20 years old, Little Caesars Pizza, so probably not a good advertisement for you. Put me in the hospital. They did a CT scan and realized I had a bacteria infection. Actually, a year later, I went back in the hospital because I had Little Caesars Pizza one more time. You're broke. You're trying to eat what you can. You know, it's one of those things. Yeah, the Little Caesars is an interesting one, right? Because it's like, it's, it's advertised that it's hot and it's ready. And I, I see the memes going around. It's like, well, is it good? It's like, no, it's hot and it's ready. And that's the little Caesars thing. Uh, an interesting note there. The one time that I've had food poisoning in my life was from pizza. I, I know it wasn't little Caesars. I, it may have been Domino's. Uh, my wife could probably say for sure where it was. But, at, you know, another thing you said there is interesting. I see a lot of times it's like people that were like all in on the sport, like, you know, high level athletes. Um, and then for whatever reason, they pivot into some other fitness niche, whether that's like CrossFit or, or bodybuilding, um, it's just kind of a consistent theme you see, because people that are like wanting that like stimulation and, and competition. And I would argue that it's probably like a lot easier to make progress, like bodybuilding, lifting more weights than like trying to get your hundred meter time down in sprinting track or trying to like work on a new skill in, in soccer or something like that. Uh, again, that's just kind of my perception, just, you know, based on my experience and people I've talked to. Um, but anyway, Little Caesars Pizza aside, you I ran into some gut dysbiosis issues. Yeah, no. So just on that point, I actually made a very controversial post saying bodybuilding is the hardest sport in the world. 
Do I personally believe bodybuilding is truly the hardest sport in the world? If you look at the actual direct aspects of the sport, it's not that difficult of a sport. You go to the gym, you make sure that you make progress in the gym with the weights, volume, weight times reps equals volume. Make sure that your execution and form is good and you make progress and you prevent injury. That's generally the aspect. And there's obviously intensity of variables that come in that add some complexity. The nutrition aspect, if you stay very consistent with it, you will make progress. That's the most important thing is just consistency within the sport and you should make progress. There are definitely plateaus that you can hit. However, they're more mental plateaus than anything else. Sometimes the body needs a break. Sometimes you need to recover. So from a technical standpoint, bodybuilding is not the hardest sport in the world. Where I think bodybuilding becomes very difficult is when you're looking at the high level competitive aspect of it and the externals that come into the sport, which is relationships, finances, life, because all these things become so much harder when you're in such a depleted state, um, brain functionality, and on a men's health standpoint, erectile dysfunction and libido reduction, most, some women actually get an enhancement in libido when they're going through prep, which is very interesting and a topic for another time. Oh, I guess the topic or a discussion for this time. Uh, so when it comes to the externals of bodybuilding on a competitive level, it's a very difficult sport because the amount of consistency that you have to have outside of the direct sport with nutrition, uh, energy, keeping, make sure you keep a job. Making sure you can afford bodybuilding is bodybuilding is a very expensive sport. Uh, there was a point in time I was spending $1,500 a week on just food, all groceries, cooking my own food, rice, beef, you name it. Um, so that's my perspective on bodybuilding is as an actual internal sport, I don't think it's that difficult of a sport. And, and there's massive genetic discrepancies, which can make it easier for people or harder for people, just like all sports. But from a technicality standpoint, I don't find it as difficult as a sport as something like an MMA. MMA, I think, is one of the most technical sports in the world. I did jujitsu with a guy that was pro one time, and I felt like a little toddler. So <laughs> uh, that, that was an interesting one. So I, I think that's a great point that you brought up. So high-level athletes will flourish in the sport very easily because it is, from a, a direct standpoint, it's not as hard as other sports in certain aspects yeah. i mean in so. terms of just like adding five pounds to your squat or adding 20 pounds to your squat like those things especially when you're starting off very easy very achievable um, but i guess more so not just looking at like the progressive overload aspect like can somebody increase their fat free mass index and put on more lean body mass from just a health standpoint but when you get into the uh, competitive bodybuilding where you are trying to reduce your body fat to really low levels it's basically the you know, running a hundred percent against the algorithm of what society has set up people to do right so you have like easy access to all these hyper palatable super calorie dense foods and you know people that are kind of coasting through society do the opposite right they accumulate excess adipose tissue 60 70 percent of the population i think is overweight last time i looked at the numbers so basically as a bodybuilder, you're doing the opposite of what is the easiest to do in society, uh, just from like a, a nutrition standpoint. Absolutely. It's, it's fascinating to people too, to see what the end result can be, because it is such an anomaly. You're talking a small percentage of the populace. It's being more populated within the younger populace now with social media and everything like that. However, topic of discussion for another time. That's a social indifference issue, I think. <laughs> or not social indifference issue, but a, a social shift thing that is happening with uh, attention spans. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it's interesting. I'm glad that more people are interested in health, whether it's just biohacking or whether it's a legitimate interest in like, how can I not you know, have a severe COVID-19 illness, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, but people are like taking an active role now because I think that's a great catalyst to set them up for better, like long-term health. Like just over time, if you take an interest now and just like keep listening to people and learning from people, hopefully like reputable people putting out good information. But anytime there's an interest there, I think that's going to be a, a positive for like society as a whole. Yeah. Um, I'll jump back over to the gut dysbiosis and get back on subject now. So uh, also on the obesity uh, issue that we're facing, I just want to say, I'm not going to say the actual word because Cameron's going to have to beep it out again because it's going to get filtered. Uh, so C19, after that, the obesity populace, if I'm not mistaken, the first year it was around increased by almost 10%. And then I think the following year was an additional 5%. I thought it was actually going to start reducing back down, but it increased again, which was mind blowing to me. However, it's making people very aware of health issues right now and health issues such as gut dysbiosis. So gut dysbiosis for me was bacterial overgrowth. I had it for almost 10 years before I ran GI mapping. It was around nine years. Came back lit up like a Christmas tree. I had every strain besides two, I believe, in the red, all my bacteria strains. And I had a very high strain of candida overgrowth, which goes hand in hand usually with SIBO if you had it for very long periods of time and leaky gut. So these are all things that can relate to depression. And I actually had panic disorder after I had that incident in college, which makes sense because 90% of your neurotransmitters are created in your gut. So people with panic disorder or severe anxiety, I think one major place that you should look is your gut first. My gut dysbiosis got so bad to the point where I could not physically eat more than 2000 calories a day. My jaw would lock down in the middle of my meals. I would be about three to four bites deep and my jaw would lock down. It was like a defense mechanism that my body was doing and I couldn't figure out what was going on. I tried Ganshin root to increase my appetite. I even tried MK677, which is a massive ghrelin antagonist and I could not increase my appetite. So something was off. I pulled the plug on bodybuilding, took a step back, Analyze it, ran GI mapping. Took me a year and a half to resolve it. Kyle's actually on the tail end of it where we're having conversations around it. I actually thought on the tail end of this that I either have Crohn's or ulcer colitis, not getting too much into my medical history. But you know, say uh, my leaky gut or zonulin is the read on GI mapping went from a 60 when I ran my second GI mapping up to a 700. I, I don't know if you've ever seen that on paper, but that is basically like seeping holes in your intestines. So now that I've implemented some probiotics and I ran a round of antibiotics, which I went a year almost with a natural approach. And it was just so resilient that after blasting in and breaking down the biofilm, I implemented a rifaximin. Rifaximin is, I swear, it's like the best antibiotic and I wish it wasn't $2,000 in the US to get it. <laughs> Massive difference in a very short period of time, ran a 21 day stent followed by probiotics and my gut's feeling better than it ever has. <clears throat> I need less nutrients right now or less food actually because I'm getting better nutrient delivery. And I think that's a massive important thing to remember when you're trying to build muscle, nutrients matter. Um, even people that are trying to enhance in bodybuilding. 
that is a limiting factor if you can't digest your food. So that is one reason why I got into gut health and the functional side so heavily, as well as infertility issues within women and that side of it. And I had to learn what a woman's menstrual cycle was, what PMS actually is caused from, and all these other factors that fascinated me. And I would just read into medical study, into medical study, into medical study over and over again. And I find a word that I wouldn't know. And I dive into another study. And that was just me being a nerd and very in interested in the subject. So that's where it left me today and why we were sitting on this podcast. So James, I want to hear about you and your background. You were talking about nursing school a second ago at 17 years old. So you caught my interest there. Were you in nursing school at 17? I'm really curious. Yeah. I, one last point I want to make from the, uh, the gut health point there is that the MK677 did not resolve the gut issues. So I think that's important for anybody listening to, to get, but yeah, I was actually, it was 18 when I got into nursing school. So um, in high school, I'd done some like dual credit classes, took some summer classes, things like that, where I had all my prerequisites done, um, ready to go into nursing school that fall after um, I graduated. So basically graduated high school in the spring, went into nursing school that fall, had summer classes in between. So like that, you know, senior summer where everybody, you know, goes crazy, that didn't happen. <laughs> um, but I think that's probably for the best and um, helped me get, you know, ahead and, and at a younger age. So uh, I went to like my first year is the LPN school. So I got my LPN license when I was uh, 19, I believe. And then the following year is the associate degree of nursing. So ADN, and then you're a, a registered nurse or an RN. That's probably the nurse that most people are familiar with. Um, there are programs that are like a four-year degree uh, where you go and you get a BSN, which is also an RN. Uh, they just have a bachelor's degree in the science of nursing. But there was a lot of things that stuck with me from like my nursing program. Uh, it was or, or may still be was rated number one in the state of Illinois for like board pass rates and number of different metrics. So I had a lot of good instructors, uh, particularly like pharmacology. I found that really interesting um, and more so just because it was like an active, I, I took an active interest in learning there. So it was because I was like, oh, well, you know, what is the, like, there's so many different medications in a class. Like, why are there multiple medications for this patient? Like they all have the same mechanism of action. So just kind of taking an active role there um, and really wanting to know more than like, oh, this class does this, this class causes these side effects. Because, you know, surface level, if you are a, you know, RN, you don't have to know the nitty gritty because um, you're not the one ordering the medication. You're just giving the medication, making sure there's no contraindications, making sure that it's like bringing patient's blood pressure down in the hospital, you know, whatever it may be. But one of the things that stuck with me from uh, one of my instructors was they said that, you know, I guess one aspect of nursing that they focus on a lot is that the patient, you know, doesn't care what you know, but they want to know that you care. And that just kind of stuck in my head. And I was like, you know, I think that's important. Even if you know a lot of stuff, if you don't have good like bedside manner, people don't find you personable, like they're probably not going to come see you. Like, you know, this applies as, you know, being a nurse practitioner. I've always um, tried to really build that connection with patients. You know, we take the time to listen to them. Um, and I really believe like whatever someone is struggling with, whether it's, you know, obesity, um, mental health things, panic, anxiety, depression, that they are definitely trying, you know, at that point, they probably are doing the best they can with the resources that they have available at the time. And then that's why they seek out more help is because they're at the, the end of the rope. And that's a really, 
uh, a really good place to be in as a provider because then you can empower those people with tools that they are you know maybe maybe not even aware of or um, haven't you know tried before to improve whatever their clinical cases. There's always you know more things you can do. So that's that's sort of the nursing school part, and then. No, I did want to add, sorry, I want yeah, no, to add because you said some things that are very unique in the medical field, which is the way things should be done. A lot of patients walk in a door to a doctor's office. They tell them their symptoms. They give them a pill. They walk them out the door. That's it. What you just said is you listen to the person's case. You see what the symptoms are and implement lifestyle changes into their lives and give them tools to live a better life. Medication may be involved in some aspects. However, if you can give them a tool to avoid a medication that will help them for a lifetime, that's better than a medication for a lifetime. So I think that's amazing that you do that. I think that's one reason why you're so successful and will continue to be successful. So go ahead and continue after your nursing school. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And just to defend the traditional medical community a bit, I mean, yeah. they are trying to do the largest amount of good in the smallest amount of time. And if you have somebody that comes in with severe depression, a lot of times, you know, that may be an SSRI and SSRIs aren't inherently evil. Like, I don't believe that, um, but they're not intended necessarily for somebody to be on them 20 years, you know, maybe to like boost you up out of a rough spot, you're mm -hmm. severely depressed so that you can start doing some of these things, restructuring your environment. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's, it's really the best approach is just having more time And the traditional model isn't set up to where, you know, time is reimbursed. It's more so just, you know, the number of patients that people are seeing. Um, and a lot of times it is like symptom prescription. So, you know, point taken. And then I also believe that those people in the traditional model are trying to do good by their patients. You know, I don't think people are out there just trying to get kickbacks from drug companies. I, I don't think that's happened for a long, long time at this uh. point. But I, th I think that's a little bit higher up above their pay grade, actually. I, I think it amazes me how many people say that doctors get kickbacks from drug companies. I don't really think it's prevalent like people think it is. It's really that they're trying to, like you said, do as much good in as short of a period of time because they've got another 20 clients that are sitting in a room right now and they need to get through this to help as many people as possible. And I also agree with you on SSRIs. I feel like they're demonized a little bit. However, they're a band-aid on a bleeding artery for a, for a temporary amount of time. And you want to fix that bleeding artery while they're on that band-aid during that period of time to make sure that they're good for the rest of their lives. So I think that was an awesome point that you brought up on SSRIs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the bleeding is a good analogy there. Um, and after nursing school, I went into orthopedics and part of this goes back to how I got into, I guess, interested in medicine in the first place. So I always liked the sciences growing up and I, I broke a lot of bones so I was in doctor's offices, emergency rooms, had surgeries, rods put in, uh, had compartment syndrome at one point in my right arm. So like orthopedics was like a shoe in for me, like out of nursing school. I was like, oh yeah. So like, I've been there, you know, done that, learned about it. And it's very rational, right? You have a, a broken bone, line it back up, put a rod in it, screws, things like that. And it grows back together. Like it, it makes a ton of sense. You know, sometimes things don't work out well. You have complications like avascular necrosis where people aren't getting enough blood flow like to the bone to get healing. Um, but for the most part, it works out and a lot of joint replacements were and, and still are happening. So that was where I was. And with the joint replacements, you know, it was nice to see the mindset shift that people had, um, or at least the mindset they even had coming in. It's like they've had this chronic pain that's, you know, 
five, 10 years gets worse and worse every year. And now they, they have pain when they wake up from surgery, of course, but it's a different kind of pain. It's like, okay, this is surgical pain. And now this is going to get a little bit better each day, each week, instead of progressively getting worse. Uh, and people are up and walking like same day of surgery now. So it's really, you're not laying in the bed for a week. So it was really amazing to see like that mindset shift that stuck with me. Um, and the people were just excited to get their lives back. And I think anytime you can kind of inspire that same hope in somebody, that's really important to do. That's, no, that's awesome. I, I didn't know that you had an orthopedics background, speaking of orthopedics. So you don't know my background on my injuries. So I've broken just about every bone in my body, um, including my nose multiple times. I currently have a torn hip labrum. I got lipogems, which I'm not familiar, sure if you're familiar with lipogems, which is basically they take fat cells and they inject it into the area and you get stem cells that separate out. So the fat cells pad the joint a little bit while the stem cells are repairing the area. It's one of the few, I think it's the only way in the US you can still get any type of stem cells because you can't mechanically separate stem cells anymore. So it's very similar to PRP, but it's fat. I did it to my shoulder and I did it to my hip. My hip is actually healed almost up to 80% now. I'll probably need another injection. However, I'm not going to do an MRI. I'm a muscular individual. It's like a 50% fail rate on an MRI for a hip. So I'm not spending the money there, but I do need an MRI on the shoulder. I had labrum surgery. I, my labrum surgery, I was pressing, I was doing dips two weeks after surgery. I was doing 90 pound dumbbells a month after surgery, was in a car accident a week later. And they think it tore my rotator cuff and my labrum again. So I need to get an orthogram on that. Um, maybe I'll send it over to you to <laughs> overview it and get an opinion there because I think it's, it may be done, done, unless if I have to fly down to Mexico or something like that. So I'd love your opinion there. Yeah, yeah, definitely some investigation to be done there. Um, I don't know if the doctor told you to do dips two weeks after surgery, but I, I don't think he could have anticipated the uh, the car crash, right? Which was kind of the the final blow there. Yeah. So he was actually good with it. He didn't send me to PT. He's like, you know what you're doing. You're going to rehab it faster. I told him straight up. I was like, I did dips the other assisted. Obviously I did assisted dips and it feels pretty good. A little bit of discomfort, but not pain. So I bid it basically by pain tolerance. And I also ran peptides in conjunction with it. Uh, I did, I mean, I'll just be open and honest. I did two IEs of growth hormone a day combined with BPC-157, TB-500, which I think are seriously close to miracle peptides, as close as it gets, maybe GHK in the mix there too, if I thought it was prevalent there. However, they worked phenomenally well. I, I felt no pain after four weeks, which was absolutely mind-blowing because I'd been living with chronic pain because it was misdiagnosed by different doctors for two years until I walked into my doctor's office that did my knee surgery. I go, please run our MRI, script me an MRI. And he immediately did it. He didn't ask any questions. We got to told him the process I went through. I even went to PT for it, no progress. And it was a torn labrum. I actually filled a rotator cuff test when he was mechanically testing me mm -hmm. uh, just because of the muscle tissue I have in the area. And it turned out it was a labrum tear. So I was doing phenomenal. The car accident was, that was a culprit. That was it done. So. Yeah. So I guess peptides are, are good stuff, but they can't protect against a you know car accident <laughs> not yet. Not yet anyway. Right. So Maybe one day. 
Yeah, and after um, after orthopedics, I pivoted into a like a float pool position. And what that is is, you know, I would go to all the different units, usually whatever unit was short staffed in the hospital, which is a you know ongoing issue. So people are always glad to see me when I showed up because it's like, oh, hey, we we thought we were going to be really short staffed, and and now we're less short staffed. So I, I got exposed to you know a lot of different backgrounds, so like mental health. Um, the renal uh, diabetic unit, which is not just a coincidence that those two go together. Um, you know, and cardiac was where I really like, I was like, oh, hey, like, I, I think this is something that I want to pivot to and do like most of the time. Because after, after a while, it's nice to like have some sort of a routine. Um, and even if you're on a unit in the hospital as an RN, you're going to float around. So I ended up at cardiac for, gosh, probably three or four years. Um, and then I was working cardiac while I was going back and doing my uh, nurse practitioner program. So working part-time there, full-time student. And what was really interesting to me, and it's probably what prompted me to go ahead and go back was that you see these end outcomes where you have like heart attacks, strokes, people going for open heart surgery, and that's about 80 or 90% preventable, like just modifiable risk factors. So it's not always like, oh, it must've been a freak thing. They had some genetic condition. Usually it's, you know, smoking, high blood pressure, you know, dyslipidemia off the charts, being sedentary, all those things that we know can be modified in people's environment that lead to this outcome. Not for a while, you, know, you get away with it in your twenties, thirties, but you get into your fifties, sixties, seventies, that stuff catches up with you. And, and that's what I was seeing was really like the end result of a lack of either preventive care or preventive measures that maybe people didn't know about, or, you know, maybe people weren't taking seriously because, you know, you don't feel your blood pressure go up usually. I mean, maybe in the, the bodybuilding or powerlifting world you do when your nose starts bleeding, <laughs> but, um, you know, for the average person, you know, they don't feel their blood pressure. They don't feel their cholesterol. So it's, it's quite hard sometimes to rationalize with someone's like, Hey, do this now for this thing that you can't see or feel so that you don't have this in 20 or 30 years. So I think more people are forward looking with their health now, you know, kind of like we were talking about earlier, there's more of an interest in this. So it's been nice to see, um, you know, the opposite and be on the front end of that now in the preventive space, as opposed to at the end of the line, um, when they're doing these sort of um, really impressive, really drastic measures that have good outcomes. Um, but that are, you know, unnecessary if people are making proper lifestyle modifications most of the time. Now I'm curious, did you ever see, and you probably did, and that's probably one of the reasons why you came back to school, interesting pharmacology being applied that you thought could have been applied better when you were on the cardiovascular risk section specifically? As far as, you know, like the, the standard of care, I mean, it was, you know, get your aspirin, get your statin, you get your beta blocker, you got to take, you know, your, your blood thinner for you know, stents, Plavix or whatever they were using, Berlinta a lot of the times. So different cardiologists have different medication regimens. Um, and most of the time, a torvastatin was the most commonly prescribed statin. And I don't know if the data was there at the time, but I know that certainly in the last two years, there's been a, an association with the, the lipid, uh, lipophilic or lipid-soluble statin medications and a higher incidence of adverse effects. So there are better alternative medications there now. Um, like if, if somebody's trying to be proactive as, you know, let's say someone who's going to use performance enhancing drugs and as a healthcare provider, I'm going to say, I'm going to tell you to stop using performance enhancing drugs because they're not good for you. Um, but they're like, well, I'm not going to do that. So then we move on to harm reduction, right? It's just like, if I tell somebody, you know, let's say you're in the traditional medical model. Okay. 
yeah, your weight's going up, your blood pressure's going up, move more and eat less. And the person's like, yeah, I, you know, I'll do that. And then they come back and it, it doesn't happen just because of whatever, and, but, you know, wasn't great advice to begin with. And they've got these other variables in their life. So, you know, you treat the blood pressure. You're not going to let someone like have this elevated blood pressure, this risk, just because they're not following your advice. So we move on to harm reduction. So yeah, there's better choices for lipid lowering medications. Um, I think that the PCSK9s are particularly interesting because they kind of mimic a genetic population out there now. People who have this loss of function in PCSK9, which is a gene that basically allows you to clear your LDL cholesterol particles much more rapidly. And these people are, you know, 90% of the time not going to develop heart disease. I mean, if they become diabetic enough, anything's, you know, anything's on the table. But for the most part, these people are kind of immune to heart disease. Um, but as far as even the statins that are now generic and very cheap, um, the, the hydrophilics are, you know, much more, um, they have a better long-term safety profile. Uh, and the, the most important study, I think, that came out, uh, and I think it was Dr. Gillette and I, he may have alerted me to this or vice versa, but I remember discussing it because there was some, you know, metabolic changes in the, the brain areas that are associated with like early cognitive decline or dementia. And they found this association with the lipid soluble, like a simvastatin or a torvastatin, but they didn't see it with pravastatin or rosuvastatin. So basically there's the newer generations of medications are more specific for, for lowering the cholesterol. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that you can do there now. I, I think there's a lot of good preventive tools. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, so in the bodybuilding world, it has become more prevalent to use an ARB actually for blood pressure control, as well as lipid control, you know, helps prevent left ventral hypertrophy to a degree. At least some studies say it, there's even some studies out there. I believe it's within women that show that there may be myostatin inhibiting properties behind Tomasartan in particular, um, in the ARB categorization. So, um, that's been super interesting, but Again, I think you talked about diabetes and blood glucose and blood pressure. Those are the two vital signs that I would highly recommend. Minimum, if you're a normal person, do a read once a month and just see where it is. And if it's like crazy high or something like that, do a second read that week at some point in time. That is something that I personally have all my clients that I work with do every single week. And if they're not doing it, I'm going to hound them until they start doing it. Because if I'm suspecting maybe even high stress, high stress will lead to elevated blood glucose levels because they're probably not sleeping well at nighttime. Uh, that's something that insulin resistance is a very real thing. And that's really the culprit to developing plaque long-term. That's the first stage is having too much blood glucose and breaking down the arterial walls and then starting to calcify LDL in those there. So, um, I think that's really interesting. Also, I did not know that about statins. So that's what I love getting on these podcasts with you and talking about this stuff. So yeah, yeah. was at the end of your something... medical journey, you went back to school. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I went back to school and completed my nurse practitioner program. And yeah, I had a lot of really good mentors. Uh, I, I yeah, I'm trained with a internal medicine physician that had been, you know, doing it for 30 years. So he had a ton of like clinical knowledge, great diagnosticians. So doing my clinical rotations with somebody like that, I uh, was fantastic. You know, that was who I spent the most hours with. Um, I, I did, I did hours with some other physicians as well. Um, and 
there's one example that I give sometimes that, you know, I heard when I was, you know, um, presenting a patient case, right? Somebody was on metformin, um, they were also taking omeprazole. And I was like, hmm, I was like, you know, going back to my pharmacology interest in RM, I was like, oh, these are both associated with like a B12 deficiency. I was like, maybe we should screen this patient's B12 levels. And like, well, does the patient have any signs of B12 deficiency, you know, like, which would be like a neuropathy or fatigue, like their hands and feet going numb, those sorts of things. And I was like, well, no. And then they're like, well, you don't test for it then. So, you know, that was one person's approach is like, you know, you don't test for something unless you have a symptom to like treat or, or I guess an indication aside from being preventive. So that wasn't the you know, kind of the way that I wanted to practice and not everyone in traditional medicine is going to practice that way. So I kind of took the best parts of like what I learned from each um, physician that I trained with, um, from each instructor that I had and kind of incorporated those into like my own practice now. So kind of like putting my skill points in, in different places, like where I wanted to practice and, and excel at, um, which is really just, you know, taking a granular individualized approach. Uh, and guidelines can be a great starting point, like for people who are like, okay, what's going to, at the population level, going to do the most people the most good. Like, I think guidelines are a great thing there. And there should be some reason that you deviate from the guidelines, not just because, not just because, <laughs> um, but, but even recently, like uh, I was talking with someone about this the other day, the uh, USPSTF, so United States Preventive Services Task Force put out a, uh, another like recommendation against the use of hormone replacement therapy in postmenopausal women for primary prevention of things like bone loss, cardiovascular disease. But they're looking at the hormones that were used 20 years ago. So, you know, it shouldn't be like hormone replacement therapy, but it's like, don't prescribe uh, medroxyprogesterone and don't prescribe conjugated equine estrogen because those cause these adverse outcomes. Uh, it's like if you look at studies in patients with diabetes, right? Uh, and there are there's a class of anti-diabetic medications, the sulfonylureas. So this is like glipizide, gliburide, and basically they just make your pancreas put out more insulin, um, and it burns out your beta cells, and you have more vascular events. So if you took the same approach from that class of drugs, it'd be like you don't treat diabetes with anti-diabetic agents, look at all the harm, as opposed to saying, you know, wait a second, there maybe there's some difference between the different types of medications that are used, even within the same class. So, you know, that's kind of the way that I view it. You know, there's a lot more to managing somebody than just like following an algorithm um, because everyone's an individual. Yep, everyone's an individual. We all have different genetics. We all have different epigenetics. And those are going to change over time because epigenetics, right? Um, I think that's an important thing. Um, everyone has a different life. Everyone has a different environment around them. And taking in life events and life factors is a huge thing. I think another important thing that no one really talks about also, which is very prevalent within women, is trauma actually as children and what that leads to later on because, for instance, autoimmune diseases 80%, I believe it's 80% of women or 80% of people diagnosed with an autoimmune disease of some sort are women. And a lot of it is being slowly correlated back to some childhood stuff that has happened. And I also think that another reason that may be the case is women are more susceptible to stress responses than men, even at a physical level. 
I see that a lot of times within blood glucose issues within women, especially athletic women that have start to develop PCOS due to high elevated blood glucose over time. And they're showing signs of androgen dominance. Now, yes, an athletic advantage. However, it is very, very prevalent. And then it increases inflammation, systemic inflammation within the body and potentially leads to bacterial overgrowth, creating autoimmune issues from the gut. So there's a, it's very interesting how all the systems play a role and the lifestyle and the environment is something that is usually not talked about as much as I believe it should be uh, when it comes to prevention. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, I think I saw a paper earlier this week, even that was looking at, you know, trauma. And if somebody, you know, doesn't feel safe, or they don't have that, that luxury of like, having a safety net, or feeling that their environment is secure as a child, then, you know, there's, adverse outcomes to that. And they, they do go on to develop more anxiety disorders, understandably so, because they didn't have that early reinforcement of like, the world is a safe place. Generally speaking, they had the opposite experience. So there's a lot of data coming out and, you know, it's good that the you know, mental health is kind of coming to the forefront now where there's not like a stigma, like you don't have issues just because you're working on your mental health. You know, it's very much a positive thing that you are, you know, improving your mental health because the physical health and mental health, they, they go so much, you know, hand in hand. If you look at um, a big trial, inner heart trials, they looked at people in all, like tons of different countries, different continents, looked at heart disease, all the risk factors. And you see things like the blood pressure and the cholesterol, uh, but chronic stress um, was actually a, I believe it was a hazard ratio of over two. So more than a doubling of risk of somebody having a vascular event. So if you're not managing your stress, like your physical health may be great on paper. You may have great blood pressure. You may be insulin sensitive, you know, you're exercising, but if you're not managing that stress, that's still an unaddressed risk factor. Yeah. I have clients actually right now that have elevated stress levels, blood glucose, good blood pressure, good walking to doctor doctor's office, all the scans come back good. And the resting heart rate is above a hundred. Now you might be stressed out when you go to the office. So that's a different situation. However, if you have a watch and you're constantly pulling it back a 90 to hundred, it constantly feels like you have anxiety or pressure on your heart at all times because you do. And I think it's important to incorporate things, even something, something as simple as breathing habits, um, which is, some people don't like doing breathing habits and that's fine. Something as simple as journaling, looking at the sunlight at the, when you wake up in the morning within the first 30 minutes, simple things like that add up to making your sense of well-being so much better. And most people that are driving to work every single day, they talk about how bad the traffic is. This traffic is killing me. Instead of just looking up and looking at the sunlight and be like, it's a beautiful day outside. Simple things like that go such a long way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, being mindful in your everyday life. And, and when you have, like, if somebody really has the elevated resting heart rate and like they're in reasonably good shape, right? So you'd expect a fairly low resting heart rate. Um, either that's, you know, in the general population stress induced or uh, in the like bodybuilding communities, male or female, it can be drug induced. If you're doing too many things that shift you towards sympathetic nervous activity, you know, androgens, thyroid hormones, stimulants, you know, all the things that you know, people are used, you know, leveraging, using to get to their goals, um, they're creating a bit of cardiac autonomic dysfunction, which is just a, a fancy way of saying, yeah, your heart's beating too fast, your heart rate variability is going down, 
you know, you're in a more, your, your cardiac tissues are going to be more irritable. So you're more likely to have palpitations, cardiac arrhythmias, sleep issues, all those sorts of things when you have an imbalance of that parasympathetic, uh, which is kind of your rest and digest is, is how I learned it state. And then the sympathetic, which is fight or flight, right? Everybody says you're running away from a tiger. Well, you can't run away from a tiger 24 hours a day. I like that one. I'll have to remember that one. one. <laughs> I'm talking about sympathetic. So let's jump into women's hormone health and HRT. That's a super interesting subject. It's becoming more popularized within the world. I also think that it's being pushed too heavily on some women. However, some women could really benefit from it. So I think talking about the nuances between what a good lab work looks like for a woman and if they would benefit from HRT and the nuances between the studies that are being presented such as the um, progestins that you just talked about. Yeah, yeah. So women's hormones is a lot more interesting, a lot more exciting to me, just because there are more levels to it. Um, Not to say that, you know, men's hormones can't have nuance either. Uh, It's not as simple as like, you know, everybody gets the same thing. You know, there's certainly nuance on both sides, but particularly for women, because a lot of people are now making the case that you know, women's birth control is really a synthetic HRT minus the androgen, right? So you have a progestin that's replacing the progesterone, a synthetic estrogen that's replacing the estradiol, and then the androgen is just like, no, like they don't need that. Um, and it would be interesting if there was a contraceptive out there that had a bit of a synthetic androgen component in it to help offset you know, perhaps an increase in sex from a binding globulin that is going to bind up all of the remaining testosterone, which if somebody's ovaries are shut down on synthetic HRT, largely that's going to be coming from the adrenal production of androgens. So, you know, it's an, it's an interesting topic. I don't think we'll ever see that in like a synthetic birth control. Um, if someone wants to have a, a form of birth control, because birth control is very important, that is the most hormone neutral um, probably looking at a copper IUD, it makes the most sense. Um, even the progestin-based IUDs that are, in theory, supposed to stay, you know, the hormones are supposed to stay in the uterus, they're not supposed to have systemic effects. Uh, they definitely do have systemic effects in, in terms of like the way that women feel. Some women, their mood is better. Some women, they are more irritable, have a worse mood. Um, some women, you know, they've done some imaging studies with women who do not take any like, hormone replacement, women who are on these IUDs, uh, and they see some changes in, you know, breast tissue that is attributed to or correlated with that IUD. So it's not quite as good on, in practice as it would be on paper. There definitely are some hormonal nuances there. Um, and something that you and I were chatting about a bit before you know, we started recording was just the the lack of like an FDA approved testosterone. Um, and testosterone, I think it's because it has that stigma, right? It's a controlled substance. Um, going back to the whole sports debacle, you know, 80s and 90s and, and so forth. Um, but when Viagra came out, there was about 5,000 men that had been studied, a little over 5,000 men, and it got the FDA approval. And at this point, you know, obviously it's a larger time frame, but there's been over 8,000 women that have been studied. Um, for testosterone, typically it's a topical form, um, specifically for low libido. Um, the trials on depression are kind of mixed. Um, you see some improvements, some where there's not improvements. But for low libido, it looks like a home run on paper. And there's been a lot of societies, you know, these medical societies that have come out and advocated for it, but there's still no FDA approved product. 
So you have compounding pharmacies, which can be a great thing. Uh, but when you have variability in preparation, you're going to have variable you know, outcomes. And it's really important for anyone who's kind of delving into this. And they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to prescribe testosterone for women, that they are following those women closely with lab work, uh, following the clinical picture, uh, because a testosterone level of you know, 100 in women you know, in the studies brings up libido, very few adverse effects, a little bit of acne, oily skin here and there. No facial hair, no excess body hair growth, no virilization, no clitoral growth. But if that woman has a sex hormone binding globulin that is 16 because she's insulin resistant, you're going to have a very different outcome. So you know, that's just one example. And you know, for people that maybe are not familiar with the sex hormone binding globulin, basically it's a protein that binds onto the testosterone or androgens in general and kind of modulates its delivery to the tissue. It would be more likely to prevent its delivery to tissue that are androgen sensitive, like hair follicle, skin, um, the larynx, um, things like that, that women don't want to be androgenized or masculinized. Yeah. I kind of want to add to the birth control subject and kind of jump all the way up into the HRT, just like what you just did. In relativity, on paper, birth control sounds phenomenal for what it's going to do, hormonal birth control. However, Hormonal birth control, they've just some macro studies. I think they consolidated down 152 or 153 studies off the top of my head into a macro study. It, the reduction in testosterone was 30%. The reduction in free testosterone was an average of 60%. And that has to do with sex hormone binding globulin, which again, increases free androgen index or free testosterone. So from a athletic standpoint, being on birth control reduces down your hypothalamus pituitary axway, which is going to be responsible for how much hormones you're producing. Obviously you have the ovarian pathway and then you have the adrenals as well. However, uh, there is a massive reduction and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it by this point with the amount of studies that have come out with the reduction in testosterone. So the copper IED seems to be the best route to go. Just parroting what you said, I completely agree there. Also, I see birth control from a performance standpoint being a reducer in body fat loss because some of these women, not all, but some of these women are becoming estrogen dominant and starting to store excess body fat. Estrogen dominance can also potentially lead to something like an endometriosis or on the, on the more severe end of the spectrum, obviously endometriosis, um, but also increased risk of breast cancer. Now, I don't think that there's actually a study that shows that correlation. However, the increase in phytoestrogens can definitely increase the risk of breast cancer, which is a completely different topic for another time. Jumping a little bit further into the HRT route, bioidenticals is what you're looking to when you're doing HRT route. And I can, from an athletic performance standpoint, having around 100 nanogram per deciliter is completely different than having 10 nanogram per deciliter. I will warn some women out there when you walk into an HRT clinic, you run your labs and you see a five nanogram per deciliter, that is low. Most healthy women in my personal experience from a fitness standpoint tend to be in the 15 to 25 nanogram per deciliter, maybe 30 nanogram per deciliter range. And most women on the androgen dominant side, some women with the PCOS, for instance, I've seen anywhere between a 40 all the way up to a 190, which is the highest I've seen on paper. And those women don't mean to be on a testosterone usually, 
um, or you have to be very, very monitored closely if you are going to. And every single woman is going to be completely different on how much progesterone, bioidentical progesterone, not progestin, uh, added into the mix when you're on it because everyone's cycle is different. Some women keep a very high progesterone level, which is very uncommon when they're on a usually 10 milligrams of testosterone would bring you to that uh, 100 nanogram per deciliter marker for most women, maybe a little bit higher at peaks, uh, peak serum levels. And yeah, so that's what I have seen in relativity, but from a performance enhancement uh, standpoint, from a libido standpoint, women do phenomenal on testosterone, even five milligrams of testosterone per week, I think is a phenomenal thing for most women. You're only going to be sitting around 50 to maybe 60 nanogram per deciliter on paper. Probably no virilization uh, will happen there also. I'm curious to hear your standpoint on nasal testosterone. I think nasal testosterone may be very applicable to women. I don't know how deep into the studies you're getting to it because it's such a short-lived half-life where you don't potentially have estrogen dominance issues coming from the testosterone. And actually on that standpoint, testosterone aromatizes into estrogen. So you can actually balance a woman's natural hormones out better with testosterone and estrogen control. You can apply a low amounts of estrogen or sorry, low amounts of testosterone sometimes and bring down a woman's estrogen level into a healthier range, which I've seen in practice and very, very cool to see it um, with some of the women that have some estrogen issues, so. Yeah, and then just by the conversion of testosterone to DHT, you're gonna be getting some opposition to that estrogen in the tissue. So it, it does sort of have that, DHT has that balancing effect that can um, either or mask or, or help to balance out high estradiol symptoms. So. Um, in clinical practice, I mean, very few people are using nasal testosterone. Mm. It's, it's an interesting application idea. Um, I posted about this a long time ago. There was a, maybe in like a university somewhere in Texas, um, academic center, they were looking at a nasal testosterone, uh, short acting, of course, yep. as they are for anxiety, um, because you know, testosterone and it basically the hypothesis behind this was, well, women have a lot more anxiety than men do, um, you know, it must be the differences in hormones. It lets you know, trial testosterone and, and see what happens. So I actually have not seen you know any follow up on that. I haven't seen that study come out. But basically, the groundwork for that was really interesting. I don't think, for the record, that anxiety is as simple as taking more testosterone. Uh, I've seen people have the opposite effect when they get too much um, fight or flight nervous activations from testosterone, and their sleep gets all screwed up. Um, but the groundwork for that study was really interesting because you would get a slightly higher brain level of testosterone, you know, like straight to the brain. Um, you have a lot of absorption there in that olfactory area. And then the blood levels for like an equivalent dose that would get you that same brain level. I think it was about a, you know, it was only like 60, maybe 70% of the blood level. So you were getting higher levels in the brain, less systemic exposure, which seemed really promising uh, as a route. Now, how many people are going to, you know, have a, a nasal testosterone? Are people going to be carrying nasal testosterone around in their purses in the future? Probably not. You know, I don't. I don't see it really. You know, panning out just with how opposed to an FDA-approved testosterone preparation the system seems to be. Um, but it would be interesting to see the trial data. I really don't know if that kind of burned out or if the trials are still ongoing there. Uh, but that just reminded me of it. And in theory, you know, like a, an injectable testosterone seems like a great option. 
uh, for women. I, I do think women would tend to be more injection averse than men would. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of women are using creams and that's what's been the most studied, but you are going to get more DHT when you're using a testosterone cream because of the enzyme that converts testosterone into DHT, higher levels of that in the skin, uh, 5-alpha reductase. And that is more likely to cause virilization. So things like you know, chin hairs or voice deepening versus uh, an injectable testosterone, you're going to have a lower you know, nanogram per deciliter amount of DHT if you have the same level of testosterone from a cream or from an injection. So, you know, in theory, that makes like, it makes sense that it's the best method. Um, you know, the commercial preparations are pretty high, you know, 200 milligrams per ml for men to kind of apply that. So a lot of times it is compounded again at a lower dose because uh, there's not a commercial product. And then when there's compounding, there's going to be variable outcomes. Um, and you know, even in commercial pharmacies, right? So your Pfizer testosterone, like Pfizer doesn't tell another pharmaceutical company, hey, this is how we made the testosterone and this is how we got it into this solution, et cetera. These companies that make generics, they have to come up with their own preparation method. um, And then they have to go and show that the total amount of drug exposure area under the curve is 80 to 125% of what the comparable brand name product is. So it's like therapeutically equivalent. So you know, and then you have something that's even less regulated, you know, there's good and there's bad compounding pharmacies out there. And if providers are really, you know, following up on their patients and checking blood work, they're going to see when they're getting results that are all over the place or getting consistent results. Yeah, I, I actually like that you brought up not all compounding pharmacies are equivalent. Um, <laughs> and I have seen this time and time again within myself because I am someone that's on TRT. Um, I'm a bodybuilder, well, basically retired bodybuilder by this point, but still love bodybuilding nonetheless. However, I've done quite a lot of trauma to uh, my testicles over the years. So I do some HCG and TRT, but there is definitely a massive variable when it comes to the quality of the compounding pharmacy. And I actually like one thing about your practice, by the way, that you guys will use the best bang for buck, as well as quality controlled uh, compounding pharmacies. I really like my experience so far using your compounding pharmacies. Most HRT clinics, they work out a deal to get the, hate to say it like this, the cheapest testosterone they can and deals that they can. They sign a contract with them and they lock themselves into a certain compounding pharmacy, whether it's a good compounding pharmacy or not. And that's where they make their money is how low, how cheap can they get their drugs and then package a deal and sell it. And that is their business model. Whereas your business model is completely different where it's, you want the client, take care of the client to the best of your ability and give them the best resources that they have. And that's really what I love about preventative as well as true medical doctors is when you're going directly to them, they want to take care of you. And then they give you their network from there. And that's the real way that an HRT clinic should be run. However, they are not run that way. And so, yeah, the compounding pharmacy, massive variability between them, unfortunately. And you just said uh, there could be a 45% discrepancy, right? Yeah. Not necessarily in the milligram amount that's in a, like, um, let's say a commercial cholesterol pill, but in the area of exposure, like how much total drug, once it's absorbed and metabolized, the pharmacokinetics, dynamics, all those sorts of things. Uh, we actually did a, an episode on the Gillette Health podcast with uh, our pharmacist that we contract with, Ben Barrows. 
and went over a lot of this stuff that was really interesting. Um, but yeah, one thing that you mentioned previously that I, I definitely wanted to revisit was the women in PCOS, right? And you see this sort of hyperandrogenism. Sometimes it's mistakenly diagnosed when you have you know high levels of DHEA being produced by the adrenal glands that you know sit on top of the kidneys, and you know that DHEA is causing the excess androgen. Uh, production as opposed to actually coming from the ovaries and PCOS is a messy diagnosis anyway, right? It's just like pick two out of three. You have signs of elevated androgens, you have menstrual irregularities, you have cysts on the ovaries, two out of three. Okay. You've got the diagnosis. So somebody could have zero cysts on the ovaries ever, and they still have you know, PCOS. So in those women and actually in women in general, when you add in androgens. And there's probably a threshold for this. Like once you go beyond a certain level, you will see insulin resistance. So this has been done in at least three different separate studies that I'm aware of. And it's probably not something that is like at low amounts, it's going to be picked up on like looking at a hemoglobin A1C or looking at your fasting glucose, maybe with the fasting insulin. Um, but in these studies are using the um, the, the hyperglycemic insulin, um, hyperinsulinemic glycemic clamp control studies. Yeah. So basically you have glucose going in one IV, you have insulin going in another IV and you're seeing, you know, how well are these women like using their insulin? Like, are they disposing of a lot of glucose with a little insulin or very little glucose with a lot of insulin? So I, I know it's been done with like methyl testosterone, give that to women, you see they're not using their insulin as well. Um, it's been shown in the you know, transgender community. So uh, women who are biologically born female are transitioning, given testosterone, their insulin sensitivity, you know, is worse. Uh, and it, it's really interesting because you see that even though on paper, you would think testosterone, androgens, muscle mass, muscle mass is good for insulin sensitivity. There's an effect there that is very sex specific. So in men, across the board, like if you take someone with low testosterone, hypogonadism, put them on testosterone replacement therapy, you're going to see insulin resistance improve. Um, and that is not necessarily the case for women. And there's probably a threshold that you cross, right? So not every woman needs a testosterone of hundred nanograms per deciliter. If you put hundred women at that level of testosterone, you're going to have a ton of different outcomes. Some of those women I suspect would have a bit of insulin resistance develop. Um, and is that like a you know, underlying sort of PCOS phenotype? Uh, the numbers are very limited in these you know, insulin studies that I'm talking about, but I, I think there's something that's biologically different there that accounts for the different actions of androgens, you know, men and women. Um, and I don't know if this is something that you've seen in your clients either. So like, or, or clients that maybe you've like rescued from other coaches that are, are jacking them up with androgens. Um, and I know there's a lot of confounding variables like, you know, growth hormone use and even insulin use in the performance enhancing drug world. But yep. is that something you've seen where specifically like X androgen or a certain level of androgen seems to come along with some insulin resistance for certain women? Yeah. So, oh, this is an interesting subject. hundred percent. You're absolutely right. Sometimes increasing androgen load with women definitely creates more insulin resistance issues. And you can add, I hate to say it, add insulin into the mix to help add some basal protectivity properties in there, which I think is what Kyle and I talked about on the last episode. Insulin is an underutilized hormone 
it could save a lot of people, a lot of pancreas damage long-term. I know GLP-1s are going to be leaned into more so than insulin because of the extremes and the monitoring that needs to be applied there. With women, 100% uh, insulin resistance when it comes to androgens can, is a very real thing. It's one of the things that I also have to monitor when someone is in a prep and I'm trying to get them as lean as possible, keep their stress loads down. And I think that it has to do with cortisol, the corticoid receptor potentially with androgens and how some steroids are going to affect the corticoid receptor. Most women have issues with progesterone as well because cortisol issues, cortisol is the number one hormone that we need in our body to make sure we're not having a heart attack. So hypothesis, sorry, my hypothesis would be that it would have to be related to cortisol of some sort that is causing insulin resistance amongst those individuals because they want to prioritize cortisol rather than progesterone. And then you have the trickle down of the androgen dominance by that point. On top of this, a lot of coaches, unfortunately, um, bottom out these women's estrogen with their selections of androgens that they use, a lot of the androgens that are used within the bodybuilding world, not just pills, all aromatizer inhibitors are used with women, which I think is a terrible selection because most of these women would be selecting from some type of DHT derived drug, which would reduce down estrogen, have some type of estrogen control, whether it be a primabolin, which was made originally for breast cancer, pulled from the market because there's better options for breast cancer to lower down estrogen, which would be aromatizer inhibitor. And that, that application for a woman is hundred percent. That's what it's there for medically. And I think it's quite unfortunate because a lot of these women that go through this have massive stomach inflammation that happens during this process. They're usually taking a lot of stimulants, which affects their adrenals as well. And their cortisol again, so it becomes a wicked concoction and their motility starts to reduce down as they start dieting down. So their T3 levels start to reduce their thyroid. When this whole, it's a, just a concoction for a messy formula. And then when you're coming out of the show, you have to address their adrenals. You have to address their hormones that probably don't exist anymore because you added so many androgens in. You have to address their thyroid. And then the most important one usually is the adrenals, by the way. Uh, I just want to throw that one out there. The adrenals need to be hit ASAP with like adrenal glandulars, um, things to help with cortisol management, whether it's ashwagandha. Not everyone does well with ashwagandha. Um, I love L-DOPA before bed, uh, which is something that no one really talks about to really help reboot everything. 5-HEP for serotonin. If you don't do this well enough and their thyroid reduced down and their motility reduced down and they have insulin resistance, a lot of these women end up getting gut dysbiosis. And I have theorized that it has to do with the insulin resistance that happens as well as the motility reduction from the T3 reduction. Um, so that, that's what I personally seen in practice. So you're absolutely 100% correct. Those studies correlate to exactly what I see. And unfortunately, the damage that I see from women coming out of shows that are with other, other coaches, unfortunately, um, I get a lot of consults coming, Hey, I'm broken. Can you fix me? And there's a lot to it. It's, it's because your system's in place. And when one system starts to go down, the other systems start to get pressure. Just like when one organ goes down the other, like if you have severe liver issues, 
sometimes severe liver issues can lead to some kidney issues um, or kidney issues can have some heart issues. So organs add pressure to other organs, just like systems. I look at it in systems more so. Systems add pressure into other systems. Yeah, and you mentioned another one there that works against insulin sensitivity, right? So uh, antagonizing estrogen. So if you have an estrogen blocker, um, even in men, this is going to cause insulin resistance, depending on you know the dose, of course. But there's studies to support that if you're taking a milligram of Rimadex a day with your TRT, you're going to have worse insulin sensitivity. Um, that's one of the reasons that women's insulin sensitivity is going to decrease after menopause, because that estrogen estradiol falls off a cliff. They put on 10, 15 pounds, you know, start accumulating belly fat because they're getting some insulin resistance, and and that's a pattern that I see you know over and over again. So if you're adding an androgen, you've got growth hormone that's going to cause acute insulin resistance. You're blocking uh, conversion of any DHEA or testosterone into estradiol. And that's just a recipe for insulin resistance, which is going to be really terrible for the body. And I've seen diet-induced hypothyroidism where if somebody is in a very steep deficit or they're doing a prolonged fast and on paper, it looks, oh, like this person has hypothyroidism. So unless you're getting a detailed history, you're like, you know, well, have you been doing anything different with your diet or how many calories are you actually eating per day or how long you know, are you intermittent fasting? If somebody's got like a you know, four hour feeding window, I'm not really surprised to see lower levels of T3 on blood work. And really the answer is not like, okay, give thyroid medication because thyroid hormone is low. It's, you know, maybe intermittent fasting isn't the best approach for you if you are not feeling great doing it. If somebody has a low normal T3 and they're intermittent fasting and they feel great, like I am never going to say, hey, you have to take this to get this optimal, this, this number to be optimal because I'm treating the patient, you know, not the number. Um, and, and that's not like an absolute. It's not just like, oh, if somebody feels good with more and more and more then give them more. Um, Cause there's gotta be some guardrails and, and some safety things in play there, of course. But yeah, in general, I, I see the same, sort of the same things you're talking about and you know, very common to have, you know, SIBO develop when people have thyroid conditions, about 15% of us will develop a thyroid condition at some point in our life. So it's very common, uh, of course, increasing with age, very common in women, more common in women whose mothers had it, um, more common in women with a family history of autoimmune disease or other autoimmune diseases. So, you know, it's disproportionately going to be on the female side of things where they have a thyroid leading to gut issues or, you know, even vice versa. If you're not absorbing your thyroid hormone precursors, things that are important for that, then you can have the exact opposite. Yeah, I see thyroid hormone, like MP thyroid is a very common one. It's a blend of T3 and T4, very commonly getting prescribed for hypothyroidism. Sure. A band-aid on the bleeding artery analogy most of the time yet again, unless if you have something like Hashimoto's or Graves' disease, um, which is always something I recommend to people is if you're suspecting anything serious, run TPO antibodies every single time you run your thyroid check. Um, TSH, free T3, free T4. Um, don't get direct, please, um, for those of you out there. And I like thyroid glandulars. I would always lean into a thyroid glandular before even going the route of an artificial thyroid replacement. Thyroid is one of those things where you can feed it, you can feed up and heal a, well, upregulate a thyroid. Carbs are amazing. So if you're in a caloric deficit for a very long period of time, it does reduce down your thyroid. 
that's that's a survival mechanism that we have. If we're not eating lots of food, why is our body going to burn through lots of food? That's just a very simplistic way of looking at it from a survival standpoint. If we're starving for days and days, the body's going to do the best of its ability to metabolize as little energy as possible to survive. And the same thing is true when you're going to a starvation mode for a super long period of time, you're going to have some sort of downregulation. One thing that I find very helpful for insulin sensitivity, as well as, um, oh my gosh, uh, insulin sensitivity, as well as uh, preventing th hypothyroidism as much, as well as cortisol management, is refeeds when you're dieting down. I love refeeds, adding in carb increases over a period of time. So if you're dieting down for five days, on that sixth day, increase your carbs by a little bit because that's what we're trying to target here. And then followed by a second refeed day, maybe 50%. That's what I personally do. I find it very useful. And you also get a drop down in leptin levels. Now, leptin is the hormone that's basically going to help burn body fat. And so we want, or prevent the burning of body fat. So we want that to get reduced down. Unfortunately, gremlin is opposite. So gremlin will go up and you'll get hungry. Please do not binge eat after following this. Uh, that's actually one reason why I actually like the two-day refeed process is you go higher and then you go lower to help with that gremlin that just spiked up. On top of this, there's also studies, I believe, that have shown that it reduces down leptin levels a little bit longer period of time than just a one-day refeed. And that might be a one-off study. However, it is something that I have seen in relativity to help people. I used to do one day feeding windows and the issue with one day feeding windows, even with severely disciplined people is the gremlin goes through the roof. So I'd rather span out a feeding window over a two day span of time. That is a tool that I found that's very helpful for people that are doing restrictive dieting, trying to lose body fat. And it also gives a little bit of a relief from the mundane life if you're like, Look, you're eating the same food every single day. Hopefully you're adding some variety in there, everyone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> your gut will thank you later. Uh, adding in some variety in there. But on that, those two days, you get a little bit of freedom if you're just like, I'm eating the same food every single day. And then you can say, I'm adding 100 grams of carbs today and 50 grams of carbs tomorrow. And you get to pick different carbs. Like don't demonize certain foods, even if they're processed, right? Like if you want to have some cereal, organic cereal, whatever, it's not going to kill you. Oh gosh, I don't want to talk about the food pyramid right now. I actually need to do the reading on it, but people are comparing steak and Lucky Charms right now. And I'm like, they're different categories. They're not even rated against each other, <laughs> but good. Click yeah. Yeah. I, I saw that come out and like, it's, it's really <laughs> interesting when people um, I see it a lot in, I'm just going to say like the keto community, right? They'll blame the dietary guidelines, which, you know, maybe in the past, like when bread uh, and, and grains were at the very bottom of the food pyramid, like this is what you eat the most of, it, maybe not a great thing, but it never said to eat a thousand extra calories per day. Um, and now the food pyramid is not terrible. It's, you know, supposed mm -hmm. to be mostly fruits and vegetables. That's what people are supposed to be eating the most of. Um, and then you have whole grains, which people eat very little of. They're eating refined grains. And then you have, you know, at, at the towards the top of this pyramid, or now it's my plate, you have things like lean meats, fish, et cetera. Um, and then like fats and sweets are sparingly, right? And, you know, I think that people can tolerate uh, a bit more meat. 
uh, if they're trying to get their protein levels up. And there's a different level of like saturated fat that's going to cause problems for one person versus another. So, I mean, the, the optimal diet, if you're trying to live to be 100, is probably going to be something that is very high in you know, fruits and vegetables, uh, that's low in you know, saturated fat. Um, and, and this is talking about like not using any pharmacology to alter any of the other effects. Um, and in the carp, the societies that eat a lot of these like, you know, lentils, high fiber foods, and they're not eating really like a ton of fats and protein, they tend to be the longest lived societies, which you know, I think is really interesting. Like for me personally, I do eat a lot of meat and I do eat a lot of plants. So I'm kind of somewhere in the middle of the two extremes there. So you have the people that are like, you know, red meat is all you need, or, you know, you only need plant foods. And for me, it's just easier to get my micronutrients in if I am eating, you know, an abundance of plant foods and an abundance of vegetable foods. Like I wouldn't know where to start personally looking at like getting B vitamins in, in my diet. If I was doing a, like a plant-based diet, it would be very difficult. Um, and I would probably have to, to supplement it and just plan it more carefully. And I also enjoy, you know, eating, you know, meat, it, it tastes good to me and it improves my quality of life. Um, but when people look at the, my plate and they're like, this caused obesity, and you look at the like healthy people, 2020 to 2025 that came out a while back. And you look at what foods are people eating and not eating. It's like 80 to 90% not eating the recommended amount of vegetables, 80% not eating the recommended amount of whole grains. It's like 90% eating more refined grains than they're supposed to. Same thing for like sweets and processed foods. And really the only nutrient dense things that people are doing okay with is like meat and eggs. Like those are really the only sources of nutrition that people are getting. So if my shtick is stop eating meat and eggs, is that going to get replaced with fruits and vegetables? Probably not. People are probably just going to eat more refined carbohydrates and high fat foods if that's the only advice that I give them. So and when we're looking at somebody's diet and talking about what's optimal for them, it's about well, what are you going to stick to? What foods do you like to eat? Yeah. And if I take something away, there has to be a replacement there. So sometimes it's better to add things in like, yeah, I'll add a couple servings of nuts in a day, add some avocado in, you know, get these healthy fats in because that's going to displace something else that you're eating. If you tell people to eat enough healthy things and fiber, you know, eventually they're not going to be eating these other things if they're eating these other healthier foods first. Yeah, I don't know if this was at the bottom of the food pyramid last time. I don't think that it was. Exercise and hydration is rated as the most important thing on the list, which I found very interesting. I was super happy when I saw that because I don't remember that being on the last food pyramid. You can correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's on my plate. I don't think it was on the historic um, food pyramids where it was actually a pyramid. Um, was this on the same one that had the like the line bar that went across and talked about the, the different scores for healthy foods and so forth. I haven't gotten into that study. I need to do my reading on it. I just thought it was hilarious that people are comparing Lucky Charms and steak because that's not true. It has nothing to do. They're literally two different categories on the scoring charts. Um, however, it was my plate and it was at the very bottom of it. It was in orange, if I'm not mistaken. So I found that super fascinating. I also want to reiterate that in my personal opinion, the Mediterranean diet is still king um, for longevity, if you want to look at it, because it's, it's really blue zone dieting. It's not the Mediterranean diet. I think the blue zone diet is really, blue zone dieting is my favorite type of diet. I will probably switch over to a pescatarian when I have more money and I can afford high quality fish um, later, later on down the road. Um, and my protein intake doesn't need to be where it is right now. I do eat a lot of meat, but I love fish. Um, and you brought up some really good points. I always say the best diet 
is the one where you enjoy your food. So pick the diet that you enjoy eating your foods. If you're doing an extreme diet, and I call everything is an extreme diet that doesn't have balance, which is whether you're keto, carnivore, uh, that vegan, plant-based, they all have downsides to them. And that's perfectly okay. If that's what you enjoy eating, run your labs, make sure whatever micronutrient deficiency you're getting, replace it. But please run your labs to make sure that you're staying healthy because Unfortunately, the most severe gut dysbiosis cases that I'm seeing right now are actually plant-based, which I was not expecting to see, but they're some of the hardest to resolve where almost every single case, not all, but most are ending in antibiotics after the functional approach and the natural approach does not work for them. Um, I can tell you the excess amounts of fiber that they're getting. However, I still think fiber is the most, fiber and fruit are the two most important things on a diet. Um, and I, I'm going to stick by that. I love healthy fats, like you're saying, absolutely phenomenal. But those two are the most underutilized things in most people's diets. And I'm, I'm not being a hypocrite. I started eating my veggies recently. However, I was very bad for years at eating my veggies. And it's one of those things that also helps with preventing plaque buildup, which people don't talk about also. Fiber is phenomenal. Um, sodium husk and just get it through your diet. Um, if you're lazy, supplement it in. And that's my biggest thing when a diet, if you're doing an extreme diet, run your labs. Well, everyone needs to run their labs, run your labs and supplement your micronutrient deficiencies. And I'm cool with it. Yeah. And, and that's where I think I give props to a lot of these people that are in the, you know, either like the carnivore community or the keto community. And they're like, you know, look at my labs before, and then look at my labs now, or look at me like before and look at me now, 50 pounds lighter. And like, yeah, they're, they're making really good progress. Uh, and that's a great path for them, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the approach that everybody has to take because there's so many tools out there, so many different strategies, and it's really about the consistency, right? Because, you know, everybody right now has the capacity if they're struggling with weight, right? They can get healthy meals shipped to their house. They can sell their couch and get an exercise bike and only use that when they're watching TV. But people are just not going to do that. That's, you know, that's kind of outlandish in our society and you know, our cultural norms. It's, it's very food centric. Um, and yeah, we could talk about, you know, the normalization you know, of obesity and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, I, I personally think that, you know, drawing attention to it and being factual and respectful um, and not trying to hurt anybody's feelings or, or fat shame by any means, but just telling people the data because the data are what they are um, is very important. And we know that it is extraordinarily unlikely that there is a metabolically healthy, you know, obese phenotype. Uh, and not just looking at like BMI, um, but I, I think a lot of guys need a fact check as far as their body fat percentage. DEXA scan is a great way to do that. I don't see this with women. They're, they're usually pretty spot on. They're like, oh yeah, I, I am at this weight and I know I feel better when I'm right here. And, and guys are like, you know, maybe they were, they're the same 200 pounds that they were in college. But they're like, yeah, I'm probably still 10% body fat. <laughs> Dexa scan, you're, just, you're not going to see that because the body's changed. And you know, I, I think guys tend to estimate themselves as being in better shape than they are. Um, not, not universally, but just a trend towards that. Yeah. It's always interesting. Some of these younger guys are like, Hey, like they'll be posing in the bathroom. Like first off, why are you posing in the bathroom? Second off, <laughs> why are you asking me your body fat percentage? They're like, what do you think I'm at? Like 8% body fat. I'm like, <laughs> do you want to know the honest answer here is are you potentially having some erectile dysfunction issues unless of your genetic freak nature 
then you might be 8% body fat. Um, that, that's a real truth behind it that people don't want to hear. Like an LA fitness trainer or a trainer just in general, it's, I don't know why it's LA fitness. It's always LA fitness. Um, but uh, they're walking around like, I'm 8% body fat. I'm sorry, you guys, 8% body fat is not very comfortable. Um, that's when it starts to actually hurt to sit down in a chair for too long. Well, your butt starts to hurt because you don't have padding there anymore. Um, I'd realistically say that most really athletic men that I see in a gym are probably sitting around like 16 to 20% body fat, to be honest. Um, very athletic and very good shape. It, they're lucky if they're around 10%. 10% is pretty, pretty darn lean. Um, like that person's going to be walking around with a six pack, eight pack usually. Um, but 10% to 14% tends to be really, really healthy individuals in the gym. Um, and that's, that's a low body fat. That's really good body fat percentage. If you can say in between uh, even 12 to 14%, I think it's that sweet spot for most people to function a normal day in the life, feel good year round, um, lower cardiovascular risk usually involved in that range as well. And even if you're like 16 to 18% body fat, it's not a big deal. You're just probably not a walking around bodybuilder in the off season kind of thing. And even bodybuilder in the off season, they get so they get obese, they get straight up obese and they put on way too much body fat. And I try to tell people that if you think about it from a dog perspective, right? The bigger the dog, the sooner they pass away. The heart is the limiting factor there. The heart isn't going to be stronger in a bigger dog. It's going to have more pressure get put on it. So if you're, even for a muscle building standpoint, take it slow and steady, any type of weight gain, take it slow and steady because it adds extra pressure onto everything in the body. Eating too much food adds extra pressure to your digestive system. And then eventually you're gonna have a crap out point where you completely destroyed your digestive system by eating way too much food. And now you need a very long break, fix what you've broken, which may take you six months, sometimes a year, in my case, a year and a half, um, just to fix what you have broke, what could have been prevented. If, if you took it slower and steadier, your results probably would have felt been better, would have felt better the whole time. And you're still not 8% body fat. <laughs> yeah, because you'll see these guys that sort of in the forums or just young guys that are getting into like bodybuilding and, and lifting, which is a great thing. They'll get into this thing like where it's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to bulk up. And then they go on a bulk for two or three weeks. Right. And then they're like, oh no, I'm like, my veins are going away and you know, I can't see my abs. So then they pivot back and they're cutting. Right. So what, what is your approach with these kind of, you know, clients? Cause I'm sure you've had conversations like this where like you, you put up, put together a plan and they're like, okay, yeah, we're going to, we're going to do a good bulk. We're going to do a good like 24, 26 weeks, whatever here and, and really put on some lean body mass. And yeah, you're going to get some body fat. And then somebody calls you back three weeks later and they're like, yeah, so I started cutting. <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually really interesting. When I was in college and we didn't have any resources, it was eat big, get big. I was eating and someone said BS on it. I was eating between eight to 10,000 calories a day. And I've been in the off season eating clean 8,000 calories a day where I was putting broth in my food because my jaw hurt so bad. And that was tracking calories. And on top of that one time, I was doing two cheat meals a week, two full pizzas a week because I was a I'm a metabolic anomaly. Now it could have partially been my gut dysbiosis not absorbing everything, which I definitely can correlate that back to it now with how little calories I need to maintain a certain physique or a certain weight. It's completely different. I'm so metabolic freak in that sense. However, I used to, we used to eat big, get big. That's all that we knew. 
It's store excess body fat. It's create new fat cells for literally no reason. And if I could have taken back time, I would have done it differently. So my approach has completely changed. We used to do three-month bulks, three-month cuts, three-month bulks, three-month cuts. Um, and our cuts wouldn't be like super deep into the cut because we don't want to limit our potential to grow as much lean tissue as possible during that period of time. I wasn't doing competitive bodybuilding in my very early phases. It was later on. And I had been lifting for five years or four years before I did my first show. And it was me cutting down for the pool season and then stepping on stage back then. Um, so now it's completely different where if I have a long off season with someone, I will do a slow, gradual bulk over. If they give me 52 weeks, I'm going to take advantage of those 52 weeks. I will also add into the mix when androgens are involved, things are very different. With a natural person, there is going to be a sooner cap out point than someone that is on androgens. When, a, when androgens are increasing, uh, let me just sum it up. Performance enhancing drugs are increasing. You can utilize more glycogen, so more carbohydrates in the muscles. Uh, your metabolic rate is most likely going to improve at the same time. The limiting factor usually is going to be around insulin resistance. And what can you do to take pressure off of a pancreas? Insulin. Insulin also opens up growth factor ways. So it's a very slow, gradual approach that I take with increasing everything. I don't just say, hey, here's a whole kitchen sink and I destroy the person's labs and I shoot, the, I shoot the, them in the foot with a shotgun before I even get a chance to even grow some lean tissue. It still takes time, natural or enhanced. I've done it both ways. If I say natural, I'd probably be as big as I am right now. In all honesty, I got big very quickly, naturally. And slow and steady wins the race. The tortoise won. And I'm realizing that the tortoise will win in this aspect as well where you slowly increase your food. And most people do have a cap out point where they don't need any more food. It's the most boring thing ever. Once you hit this point, there's just a point of diminishing return where you're just gonna store excess body fat. Let your body tighten down. Let your metabolic rate increase. Let your lean body mass increase. Therefore, the caloric expenditure now increases. It's a law of thermodynamics. It's a very real thing. Let your body tighten down at a certain weight and then increase your food again. But don't just store excess body fat to store excess body fat. When you're going on a yo-yo diet, you never take advantage of your full potential of building as much lean body mass as possible. It is a slow process. If you can put on a pound of muscle tissue a month, which people are like, oh, that's not a lot. I put on 15 pounds in two weeks. No, you didn't. That was a, a lot of water retention involved um, and inflammation. But if you take it slow and you can put on a pound of muscle tissue a month, which Real, relatively speaking, you're probably putting on about four pounds a month or so when, when you're doing that with the, the body fat and the extra glycogen storage and everything like that. That is a really, really good time frame for people. And I think people try to speed up their time frames way too much. And they unfortunately get very unhealthy. And they don't realize that the faster that you run the race of life, you still have the same finish line. So you're just going to get the finish line sooner. And you're not going to be here for X amount of years. So that, that has been my standpoint. And I also see better progress, higher reward, lower risk during this process now. And that's really where my mindset has is at now is keep the healthiest people possible while I'm putting on lean tissue. Yeah. I, I like the analogy of like the race of life, right? It's like you, you have an airplane, right? And you've got a set amount of fuel on that airplane and you, you want to stay in the air as long as you can. 
Um, so they're like, well, I want to go as high as I can, as fast as I can. So they're going to drive the airplane straight up in the air. Well, that's going to come back down a lot faster than someone who like takes a nice long ascent and then coasts back down even after they run out of fuel, right? Because at a certain point, you know, you're going to stop being able to build more, like substantially more lean body mass or your bone mineral density. I mean, you're going to peak on those usually 30 to 40. Uh, and that's not absolute. I mean, even in, uh, this was a paper I saw here recently, um, old paper, but I came across it here recently, uh, men with prostate cancer that had, uh, they were put on androgen deprivation therapy, right? So like zero testosterone, any testosterone they have is being blocked from the receptor, essentially. Um, and you start them on resistance training, they actually do build muscle in the absence of testosterone. Now they're not peak physical specimens by any means. They're not like an IFBB pro that doesn't need testosterone to build muscle or anything like that. Um, but like, regardless of where somebody is, you know, I think the emphasis on hormones for like the average person, probably a little bit too high because you can make progress. I mean, even like a woman on birth control is going to make progress. They've done these head to head studies. Maybe they gain you know, 20, 25% less muscle than you know, a woman who's not taking oral contraceptive, but there's still progress to be made there. So I think that's an important takeaway for people, but definitely like if you are at the point where like somebody is competing in a bodybuilding show, I think that the, you know, the drug use there is like, it's, it's almost, I don't know, it's almost a necessity if someone wants to compete at a high level. So it's really just evaluating, like, is this a health, like a known health risk that you want to take? Is it worth mm -hmm. the outcome to you? And then having smart people around you that can talk about how to, you know, really harm reduction, reduce the risks of these sorts of things. Yeah. Another thing within the bodybuilding world that's super prevalent is you're not taking advantage of natural pathways before you're just loading down on androgens and completely blowing out your labs. I mean, things like L-carnitine, um, even telmosartan has performance enhancement properties too, carrying extra oxygen through your blood. Um, these are all things that you can implement. Gr growth hormone, right? Growth hormone increasing IGF-1 levels. Now that's not great for longevity. Everyone talks about growth hormone being great for longevity. It's, it's a very counterintuitive argument because it's a double-edged sword. Growth hormone is great for longevity, but you're still going to get IGF-1 increase from it. And IGF-1 is not good for longevity. Cell proliferation is not good for longevity. However, if you're talking about muscle hyperplasia, all right, then we're talking, right? But now we're talking bodybuilding. And, uh, but things like berberine or metformin, these things are thing are phenomenal ways to improve things without having to rely on androgens. Um, insulin, another pathway that you can optimize the growth factors ways as well. Um, so there's all these different pathways that you can optimize before even looking to start jamming androgens through your system. So make sure that you're in a race car, not a Toyota before you go to a racetrack. And I think that's another thing that is really not talked about because you can then reduce down risk because you don't need as much. There's also genetic anomalies out there. And I put a, a few posts out about natural bodybuilding because I'm a fan of natural bodybuilding. There's massive genetic discrepancies in this world. If you're a genetic anomaly and you're willing to be patient, see how far you can take it. If you don't want to take the risk, again, of performance enhancers. And I feel like every professional athlete in every single sport fights this urge of how high can I jump? Well, there's a be, going to be a point in time when you need to jump as high as you can. And a performance enhancer is probably going to come into the equation. 
a lot. All these sports are tested. However, they're tested in a way that makes sense to where performance enhancement can play a role. And I believe that that is a factor in every professional sport, whether the general populace wants to believe that performance enhancement comes in, they're going to utilize every single tool to make sure they can jump as high as they can. They can run as fast as they can. They can hit as hard as they can. But I want to reiterate, Barry Bonds is still going to be Barry Bonds, even without steroids. And that's something that a lot of people don't relate to because it's also perspective. If you haven't been doing something, achieving a physique, if you haven't gone done something for a decade with consistency, you might not be able to believe that a physique like that is comprehensible. However, it's like Barry Bonds, even before he was on steroids, how many home runs was he hitting? It's he had been how many balls had he hit before he was hitting that many home runs? Consistency is always the king factor um, in every aspect of life, whether it's knowledge, finances, it's a compound interest over time, and you get smarter at what you do because you become an expert at your craft. So uh, I do like the point that you brought up about um, the natural factor, as well as women. I on the women aspect, by the way, I have seen women with zero testosterone no birth control, zero testosterone, zero estrogen, and zero progesterone on paper many, many times, unfortunately. These women are sometimes freaks. They build muscle tissue better than men sometimes with no hormones in the body. It is absolutely mind-blowing. I don't know how they're functioning as a human being. <laughs> However, I've seen it in relativity all the time. Yeah. And I mean, you can't look at somebody's labs and say like, oh, well, your potential is like, oh, you've, you definitely got to move these numbers around or you're never going to get anywhere because there's so many things people can do. Like there are extraordinarily healthy and talented people out there that have never had more than a like CBC and a lipid panel at their annual physical. So, I mean, just because someone is, you know, not looking at those hormones doesn't mean that they can't accomplish things. But at the same time, you know, just imagine if that same person had you know, some basic you know, performance enhancement. It, it could be as simple as like in college athletes, women again, um, cross-country runners. I, I believe they were cross-country or some sort of distance running. Most of them are going to be iron deficient. Um, so on average, if you put them on like a multi-mineral supplement, their run times go down, they're running faster. And I mean, it, it's not really a, a PED, unless you consider like ferrous sulfate or iron bisglycinate or iron chelate to be performance enhancing drugs. I mean, I guess they are in this context. Yeah, uh, I, I was actually reading a study on um, long distance runners not too long ago, actually. And the major, the biggest limiting factor when it comes to performance is actually carbohydrates and how fast, how much glycogen they can store. So they were saying that insulin was actually the best performance enhancing drug for a long distance runner, actually. And I think it had to do with more of the recovery time and storing back up and loading back up on that energy. So you can do it again, you recovered and you can do it again. Now there's obviously a lot of variables that come into play there. I mean, protein, you name it, like you have to create, uh, heal the muscle trauma and everything like that from doing a long run like that. But I thought that was a super interesting uh, point that was brought up during that. But you can, again, improve insulin sensitivity at a natural level, diet, and something as simple as a natural berberine, or again, metformin, I think are both amazing supplements. I, I, I like berberine better than metformin, personally. Metformin has its uses. However, I think it's more of like anti-cancer, uh, more so than 
berberine, in my opinion. I, essentially, they should still work mechanistically. However, on paper, metformin has been better from IGF-1 reduction purposes uh, from the berberine, from what I've seen. So, yeah. Yeah, well, it's been a really interesting conversation, David. I mean, I think we could keep going on and on and on. So definitely have to sit down and do this again sometime. But you know, thanks so much for your time. Uh, you know, introduction, talking through yourself, talking about my history, uh, talking about things that we both just dive into and read about you know, every single day. So it's been a lot of fun. And thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for having me on.